Differing Things is a podcast which focuses on how far religion and society have deviated from the Bible. Differing Things will cover many topics, both spiritual and current, to draw our listeners closer to their creator. Now for today's host, Bill Petrie. You probably know that the Bible has a lot to say about money and finances. Money is so important to people that it directly competes with our ability to serve the God of the universe. Greed is also a driver, as people are never satisfied just by getting or achieving more. Our hearts are restless. As Augustine said, until we find our rest in him, no amount of wealth can ever satisfy. While well, money comes with inherent temptations and dangers, it's also an area in which we can demonstrate our trust in God and do much good in the world. For this to happen, it helps to have a clear biblical view of money, wealth creation, and economics. This view, in turn, frames and prompts us towards sound, principle-based decisions that are sensible, knowledgeable, and not hasty. Money is so important to people that it directly competes with our ability to serve the God of the universe. Let's start with the big picture, the overall economy. An economy by simple definition is a system of production, distribution, and consumption. We must understand an economy as it was designed to operate before we can understand the distortions that interrupt that original design. Just as a person working to detect counterfeiters studies real currency more than fake, we should first study how the economy is supposed to work as a means of understanding the economy is it works incorrectly. Since the first coin was stamped in the 7th century BC, money has played an increasingly central role in human society. Along with sex and power, money is one of the elemental forces driving the affairs of individuals and nations. During the recent past, however, our understanding of wealth and its creation has been substantially altered. First, with the downfall of the Soviet Union in 1989 and the broader collapse of communism worldwide, democratic capitalism gained a stunning victory over its rival economic systems, such as socialism and state-run economies. Second, led by Wall Street in the 1980s, the Silicon Valley's high-tech revolution in the 1990s, free market capitalism made possible the greatest legal creation of wealth in human history. These events led to the beginning of a large transition of wealth from one generation to another. Finally, the real estate boom of the early 2000s created unrealistic expectations 
of ever-continuing expansion and wealth. When this bubble inevitably burst, our society was left with one startling revelation. For all the preoccupation with the making of money or the creation of wealth, little attention had been paid to the meaning of money and wealth or to the biblical principles that predate its existence and establish the basis for both monetary exchange and wealth creation. Why research the Bible in developing a perspective of finance and economics? For one, it's clear from Scripture that God owns it all. He claims ownership of the earth. Thus, his world is the natural place to look for truth about his possessions. Here are just a couple of passages from the Old Testament speaking to God's ownership of everything. Exodus 19.5 states, Now then, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. Psalm 50, verses 11 and 12. I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains. Considering this, we would do well to understand the consequences of following or not following what God says about his creation. God is not mocked in how we follow his principles. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 states, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. One of the most basic questions we can ask in relation to economics in the Bible is this. What does the Bible say about how wealth is created? Fundamentally, wealth is created through the medium of work. The institution of productive labor was established by one of the first commands given by the Creator God immediately after the creative act and before man's sinning. Genesis 2.15 states, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. Through man's productive industry, God shared responsibility for the earth with him. God's esteem of labor continues throughout the narrative of the Bible. Consider Proverbs chapter 14, verse 23. In all labor, there is profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. Proverbs twenty-two twenty-nine states, Do you see a man skilled in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. In fact, an individual's refusal to work was dealt with strongly in the early church by the Apostle Paul. He states in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. The biblical affirmation of the value of work, the value of profit, 
and by implication, the wisdom of investing is evident. The biblical pattern is that hard work is the normative method that God uses to create wealth. The Bible contains numerous passages where God gives prosperity to individuals who obey his commands and work diligently. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 8 through 10, for example, says, And you shall again obey the Lord and observe all his commandments, which I command you today. Then the Lord your God will prosper you abundantly in all the work of your hand, in the offspring of your body, and in the offspring of your cattle, and in the produce of your ground. For the Lord will again rejoice over you for good, just as he rejoiced over your fathers. If you obey the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes, which are written in his book of the law, if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. This Deuteronomy passage was clearly addressed to the nation of Israel as God's covenant community. But elsewhere, the Bible reinforces the principle that work will result in prosperity or wealth. Proverbs 11, verses 24 through 26 states, There is one who scatters and yet increases all the more. And there is one who withholds what is justly due, and yet it results only in want. The generous man will be prosperous, and he who waters will himself be watered. He who withholds grain, the people will curse him. But blessing will be on the head of him who sells it. Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting. To drink and enjoy oneself in all one's labor, in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life, which God has given him. For this is his reward. Furthermore, is for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 18 and 19 state. Wealth is given to individuals to do good and be generous. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 and 19. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Though it may be more obvious in certain situations than others, Every financial decision we make has a spiritual component. Why? Because the Bible teaches that we humans are merely stewards of the money God has entrusted to us. Because we are stewards, every financial decision we make has a spiritual component. As Christians, we are called to support the advancement of God's purposes through our finances. Therefore, it makes sense 
that as much as it is in our power to do so, we should carefully and prayerfully consider how to manage and create wealth in accordance with God's original intent. To have a proper understanding of how money and wealth exist today, we need to develop an understanding of the foundations that create economic systems. The most logical starting point for such an understanding is the beginning, God's creation of earth and man is documented for us in the Bible. Before we can even ask how things might go wrong, we must first explain how they could ever go right. These words from Frederick August Hayek, the Australian-born economist who won the Nobel Prize in Economic Sciences in 1974, set us on our path. To understand how economics may become warped, we must first examine economics in its original pristine form. This, of course, requires us to return to the starting point of all things, God himself. What role did God play in the creation of economics? And what was his original intent? I want to talk about the garden's economic model. To begin with, God provides the root of creation and the starting point for all models. The very first sentence in our Bible says, In the beginning God created. In the verses that follow, we read an explanation of God's creation and organization of various resources. As the narrative continues, God provides an oft-overlooked hint at his economy. He introduces an object with the ability to reproduce itself, a fruit with a seed in it. God provides the starting point for all economic models with this introduction of the fruit that he has the ability to reproduce. This establishes a pattern that will be repeated throughout the rest of the creation narrative. God blesses his creations by assigning them the dual role of reproduction and distribution with the goal of filling the sea, the heavens, and the land. Ultimately, God creates human beings. Unique to this creation is the reflection of the creator himself. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. To this unique creation, God gives a unique command. Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Having established a model for production and distribution, God reveals his model for consumption. Genesis 1 verses 29 and 30 state, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth, and to all the birds in the heavens, and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give 
every green plant for food. The six days of creation yield the garden's economic model. First, man was expected to work. Second, work enables the earth to bring forth fruit according to the seed placed within it. This is production. Third, creatures reproduce according to their own kind, filling the earth. This is distribution. Fourth, these creatures take as their food that which the earth produces. This is consumption. And fifth, a unique creation reflective of the Creator commands man to exercise dominion over everything else that was created. This is stewardship. The opening text ends with the statement, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. All the, object, all the objects God created were good. So also were the models God had created. Here was a balanced economy. Production was in balance with investment. Seed continued to reproduce, maintaining adequate supply to balance out the demands of consumption. The addition of oversight given in Genesis 2.15 assured that the system would remain balanced. It is additionally important for us to recognize that because God is creative in his character and nature, humans having been made in the image of God will likewise be creative in character and nature. From the very outset of human history, God granted humans a certain level of creative license. While each of the other creations was solely responsible for reproducing according to its own kind, humans were given the task of managing and to some extent expanding the economy, increasing production through work and the careful oversight of the other creations, effectively taking on the creative element of God's character with the capacity to modify the economy. While each of the other cre creations was solely responsible for reproducing according to its own kind, humans were given the task of managing and to some extent expanding the economy. As British essayist Dorothy Sayers wrote, and I'm quoting, looking at man, he sees in him something essentially divine. But when we turn back to see what he says about the original upon which the image of God was modeled, we find only the single assertion, God created. The characteristic common to God and man is apparently that the desire and the ability to make things, end of quote. To ignore the existence of God when formulating economic concepts is to neglect the creative resemblance and creative capacity that humans share with their creator. Those who fail to consider that humanity's creative ability comes directly from humanity's creator tend to underestimate the importance of the wealth creation process itself in modern society, is evidenced by those still struggling to understand the wealth explosion 
of the last two or three centuries. In a similar vein, after the fall, like all parts of God's creation, people's creative ability can be, and certainly are, misused for their own gain and to the detriment of other citizens. To ignore the existence of God when formulating economic concepts is to neglect the creative resemblance and creative capacity that humans share with their creator. The Bible says that mankind has the resources of the earth with which to work and create wealth. As a measure of stored value, money exists for the bartering of goods and services. It appears that the Bible encourages a consistently valued currency. The Bible also encourages savings and investment of the money earned. Finally, government is established for the protection of the citizens and by inference of the commerce that takes place within its borders. Admittedly, the Bible does not specifically address the complexities of the economic factors that fuel our economy today. But even though the Bible does not comment on housing starts and bank lending rates, principles of wealth creation can be developed and investors can reason from these biblical principles and apply them to the current economic events to seek knowledge and wisdom for decision-making. Prior to the fall, Adam and Eve were tasked with the management of the Garden of Eden, the subduing of the earth, and the filling of it. They had a responsibility to perform work and their tasks were blessed by God. After the fall, however, pain and frustration became associated with these same tasks. Eve is told in Genesis 3.16, Multiplying, I multiply your sorrow and your conception. In sorrow do you birth children. Adam is told in Genesis 3, verses 17 through 19, Cursed is the soil for your sake. In sorrow, eat of it all the days of your life, and it shall bring forth thorns and thistles for you. And you shall eat the plant of the field. In the sweat of your face shall you eat bread until you return to the soil. Finally, God moves Adam and Eve out of the garden and closes the door on its economic structure, <clears throat> banishing humanity into a new model of sustenance. The principle-centered economic model makes its first shift from the garden to modern day. In the garden, there had been balance, with God as the ultimate source of provision. In the earth, the tool through which he provided. Now work is toilsome, painful, and frustrating. Before God had created all that was needed and there was wholesome balance, now there is the potential for scarcity and lack. To not work meant to not eat. 
Well, God remained and still remains the ultimate source. After the fall, Adam's actions more directly factored into Adam's supply. In this post-fall economic model, our decisions affect our provision. For Adam to secure resources for his consumption, in order to secure a surplus beyond that consumption for investment, Adam would have to experience the sweat of his brow. Herein, we learn the principle that wealth is created through the medium of work. Adam faced one of the classic decision-making dilemmas facing investors today. Investment versus consumption. That which he ate or consumed could not be replanted or invested. On the other hand, if he were only to produce enough to cover his consumption, there would be nothing left to invest in future production. As society continued to evolve, the economic options available grew beyond the two available to Adam. In Genesis 4.4, Abel introduced a new component, that of honoring God with offerings. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 14, there's taxes to civil authorities and governments appear in Genesis chapter 47. In Exodus 30, verse, verses 11 through 16, we see Moses introduced the temple tax as an obligation to the Israelites for the upkeep of the temple. The three areas these options represent investing, charity, and taxation are potential avenues down which our resources can still flow today. Some are based on belief systems, and some are mandated by law. However, all can be reasonably stated as non-personal consumption. As such, they are payments to the government or to the church, or investments in future productivity. King Solomon, a man renowned for both his wealth and his wisdom, spoke openly about the need for shrewd investment. For example, Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 11.1, 1, Ship your grain across the sea. After many days, you may receive a return. He knew there was wealth-generating potential in assets like grain. He further understood that investment is not a plan in and of itself, but rather a component of a greater overall plan. Solomon certainly had enough land available to him that he could have comfortably planted all his seed, yet he shipped some to other lands, investing with the intent of receiving a greater return. Solomon even understood the value of diversification as a means of balancing risk. He says as much in the next verse. Ecclesiastes 11.2 states, Invest in seven ventures. Yes, in eight. You do not know what disaster may come upon the land. Investment requires that an individual forego a present consumption opportunity in favor 
of potential future reward. By providing grain or capital in this way, investors promote a new cycle of production. With the increase in production comes the creation of new wealth, providing additional resources for either consumption or additional investment. Jesus advocates this wisdom himself in a familiar story told in Matthew chapter 25. A wealthy man, leaving on a journey, entrusts various sums of money to three of his servants. Upon his return, he is pleased to discover that two of the servants had obediently put the money to good use and gained double the amount they'd been given. However, the man was greatly displeased to find that one of the servants had merely stashed the money away in a hiding place, content to return to his master, the very same amount he had received. He claims to have been afraid of risk. His master, though, sees something different as the root cause. He calls the servant wicked and lazy in verse 26. Jesus' parables used commonly understood practices and scenarios of the day to highlight spiritual truths. Well, some of the nuances of this parable may be and are debated. One fact is clear. If one, have, if one is given something of value to steward, the reasonable, acceptable, and prudent thing to do is to put it to work, even if this involves some risk, with the expectation of earning a return on it over time. Jesus' use of this example shows that investing with risk for an expected return was not only an understood practice of the time, but the right thing to do. It seems safe to conclude, therefore, that investment with the expectation of a return commensurate with the associated risk is a biblical premise. Furthermore, a focus on investment in the needs of others is a God-centered approach. The writer of Proverbs tells us in Proverbs chapter 13, verse 22, a good man leaves an inheritance to his grandchildren, but the wealth of the sinner is laid up for the righteous. We have every reason to believe that this verse came from the pen of King Solomon, who was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth, according to Second Chronicles 9.22. The proverb indicates that while storing up wealth was something done by both the righteous and the wicked, the purpose of that process was important to the Lord. In Proverbs 21.17, Solomon deals very matter-of-factly with those bent on self-indulgence. He who loves pleasure shall be a poor man. And he who loves wine and oil shall not be rich, he writes. In other words, a society that tends to focus greater attention 
on investment than on personal consumption tends to be a more prosperous society in the long run. This is true whether that investment is aimed toward meeting the needs of others through charity, through reinvestment in production or market investments, which in turn create wealth, or through savings. This focus on creation of wealth through investment is opposed to the reduction of wealth caused by overconsumption when combined with an attention to the needs of others allows for a greater ability to meet those needs and the fulfillment of the creative capacity inherently placed within humans as they were made in the image of our creator. What happens when there's too much focus on consumption or individual needs? This situation, as we'll see from two case studies in the Old Testament, tends to lead to the downfall of an economic system, or in plain English, an economic collapse. A focus on individual consumption as a means for driving the economy is the earmark of a demand-driven or demand-side economy. This is the economy that most countries in the Western world now have. As more and more outside manipulation is required of the production system, the system will struggle to create the means necessary to keep pace with demand. Because consumption supersedes investment, less is available to drive production. And consequently, overall wealth decreases, that society will have more and more poor people and fewer and fewer people will become rich. What ends up happening is fewer people have all the wealth and a larger number do not. Historically speaking, this type of self-centered system has never produced a healthy, prosperous society. Biblically, biblically speaking, this is because the root cause of our selfishness is that we have turned away from God as our source and provider, and instead we then are relying on our own abilities or some other provider to determine what our true needs are. And we try to devise systems to attempt to meet those needs in our own strength. And as we move further and further away from God, it creates greater and greater and greater strain on that economic system. Case study number one that I want to look at is at the foot of Sinai. A prime example of this occurs in Exodus chapter 32. There we find the Israelites having followed Moses to the base of Mount Sinai, not wanting to carry their concerns directly to God. They ask Moses to speak to him on their behalf. In a sense, they make an investment in Moses and then they wait. Up the mountain he goes. As time passes, the Israelites' anxiety causes them to grow impatient. 
eventually deciding that they do not want God's answer in God's time. Instead, they will prefer any God so long as this God would appear to answer quickly. In their urgency to fulfill their perceived needs immediately, they abandoned the God who had delivered them and used their own personal wealth gained in the process of leaving Egypt under the power, but that one true God, by the way, to create a golden calf to worship. This is at its heart demand-driven consumption, and the results were tragic. More than 3,000 people were killed. As a result, case study number two, the era of Israel's kings. The era of Israel's kings is another Old Testament example that sheds light on the consequences of a demand-driven economy. In this case, the people wanted what everyone else had and neglected the one thing that no other nation had, a personal God who served them better than any human king could. Because of God's benevolence, Israel was a prosperous nation, but the people wanted more. They wanted to be like everyone else. They wanted to dictate what they felt their needs were and what they felt was the need for a king. God allowed them to have their own way And this ushered in an era of division, war, and decline. While Israel certainly enjoyed prosperity under Saul, David, and Solomon, each of these men saw destructive challenges within their reigns. Saul fell to his own jealousy of David. David fell into adultery with Bathsheba. And Solomon fell to idolatry worshiping the various gods of his more than 700 wives who God had warned him not to take. The overall theme of decline became more evident as Israel divided into two kingdoms under Rehoboam and Jeroboam, creating the nations of Israel and Judah. In the years that followed, the northern kingdom of Israel ceased to exist, as prophesied by Isaiah In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 8, those who remained of the divided kingdom were eventually exiled. And finally, Jerusalem was breached and destroyed under King Zedekiah, fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah 7, 9. If you do not believe, then you will not endure. In the end, Israel's insistence on fulfilling their personal desire for a king, as opposed to trusting in God as their primary relational source of provision, cost them the kingdom. This is always the end of demand-driven economic and governmental models. People have a tendency toward greed, which means wanting more of what God can provide as fast as it can be obtained. Self-gratification, overspending, and perceived needs constitute the driving force. Overconsumption is inevitably encouraged as the remedy for ever-increasing perceived needs. Investment, both rational and economic, is reduced, and production slows 
consequently, in the society, becomes debtors. Because many demand-driven models, often as seen in the era of Israel's kings, include heavy reliance on the government. There is great expense to fund bigger armies and larger palaces with resulting higher taxes. This reduces the capital available for reinvestment into production. And the result is a contraction of economic opportunities and a reduction in created wealth. Is this not the case of the Western societies in the year 2023? In the near future, I'll pick up with this topic again and go a little further with it. But I hope you at least have learned what God's economic program looked like and how different our economic program is being controlled by creatures who are sinners. Good day and God bless. We want to thank you for listening to this week's Differing Things podcast. If you would like to get more information about the Bible, please check out our website, www.beacon-ministries.org. Do not forget to join us next week for a new Differing Things podcast. Thank you.